Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Jamie Rosenberg, Assistant Editor for the American Journal of Managed Care, and during this week's podcast, we'll be discussing precision medicine and the hurdles facing providers and organizations looking to implement a precision medicine program in their practice. From reimbursement challenges to primary use in oncology to proving the return on investment, we sat down with Dr. Joel Diamond, a practicing physician, adjunct associate professor of biomedical informatics at the University of Pittsburgh, and the chief medical officer of To Be Precise about these barriers and ways to mitigate them. Hi, Dr. Diamond. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. It's good to be with you. So we most often hear precision medicine being associated with oncology, but what other disease states can reap significant benefit from precision medicine? And where have you seen precision medicine having the greatest impact or could potentially have the greatest impact? Yeah, it's a great question. In some ways, oncology has sort of been the the darling of precision medicine um, and deservedly so. Clearly, some of the huge advances in cancer care in the last couple of years have been around discoveries where genetics have played a dramatic role in treating patients that otherwise were incurable. And despite, and I'll, I'll carefully say the glamour of this, um, the reality is that these are r- relatively few diseases um, where this is today. And no doubt that the list is growing very, very rapidly. So that's very exciting. But the reality is that there are several areas of medicine where genetics um, has been playing and, is, and has a, an even greater role uh, going forward. So some of the more mundane, some would say mundane areas, but actually are, are, are really helpful is what some people would call rare diseases. But in reality, children, particularly kids that are in the neonatal ICU um, ward or graduate to have development, developmental problems later on in life, more and more are recognizing that there are genetic bases of these, and those genetic bases and understanding those syndromes actually can um, lead to treatment much, much quicker uh, for those children. An example is uh, there are many causes of children's seizure disorders, and understanding what the underlying disease is and genetic basis for that really may allow what may have been a seventh-line treatment to stop their seizures may be able to say we can recognize a drug as first or, or second line and really get them uh, to treatment much, much quicker. And this is an area of medicine that's been, been going on for, for a while. I think as we start looking in more common diseases that we treat, um, and now we're talking about arrhythmias in heart disease or some forms of high cholesterol or forms of congestive heart failure, as we start looking at other more common diseases like Crohn's disease or psoriasis or other forms of arthritis, we're recognizing the genetic molecular basis of these and now finding treatments that are very, very specific based on people's uh, DNA. And finally, the whole area, a broader area around pharmacogenomics, that is the difference that every human being has in the way they metabolize drugs based on metabolism is being recognized as a way that we could start just pulling drugs out of a hat to treat blood pressure, depression, anxiety, et cetera, and really finding the drug that will have uh, the greatest impact and the least 
side effects because we recognize variance in the way, variation in the way that people respond to these medications. One field that also sticks out to me is mental health. And we hear a lot of research and headlines showing how it's typically not adequately addressed. How do you think precision medicine could help with areas like these that there's need for more attention and understanding, but also better outcomes? Yeah, I love that question because I'm a family doctor myself. Um, and a lot of professional experience dealing with pharmacogenomics, the interest has been around behavioral health. And the reality is that today, the state of the art is that it may take a very long time for a patient to even have the nerve to come to a physician or to recognize that uh, uh, symptoms they're having may be due to depression or anxiety. And the, sta the state of the art today is we typically prescribe a patient uh, an SSRI drug. It takes four to six weeks for that drug to be therapeutic. Um, patient comes back in a month or two and they're not better. We increase the dose. We wait another couple of weeks. We may increase the dose further. We may switch to a second drug. Uh, we may add a drug. And, you know, the, the odyssey here is that it, it may be six to 12 months before we even get close to getting patient on the, on the right treatment with a lot of true trial and error. Worse than that, many of these patients um, we see have been deemed treatment failure. But when we start introducing pharmacogenomics to this process, we realize that several of the drugs may, in fact, have never had a, a chance to work on that patient. Maybe they metabolize them too rapidly, and so they never were able to get therapeutic levels. Or the opposite, they were very slow metabolized of that drug, and they had overwhelming side effects, which didn't allow them to get um, a, a therapeutic trial of that medication. And then finally, those patients may, in fact, ultimately be given a third or fourth line treatment that is a, a much, much more expensive drug with, with other side effects when actually there were simpler treatments early on that we, we could have given uh, patients. So this is an area I think that is, is probably the most exciting. And I think ranging from um, psychiatrists to primary care doctors all recognize that this is the ultimate trial and error piece of which we've failed in, in the past. And there's no rhyme or reason why a doctor picks a brand name today like um, Lexapro or over Zoloft. It's based on, you know, physician preference, but not really a lot of empiric science in doing that. And I, I think that's where pharmacogenomics um, really is going to be transformative. And now switching gears a little bit and focusing more on the implementation side of things, why is it important to really understand both the clinical but also the business case for precision medicine? And have you seen that uptake and implementation has improved in recent years? Yeah. So, you know, one of the barriers to adoption of precision medicine and my own personal belief is when we talk about these barriers of adoption, um, we can genericize this and really their their adoptions to change. But and sometimes there's a fine line between fear of change and 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 using reasons um, like cost a, as a reason. Um, I think there's a misperception about the cost of ordering genetic tests. We know that the cost of ge genetic testing in general has dropped more precipitously than any other technology. So the Moore's law of technology, if we look at it for, for genetic testing, has dropped off 
um, in a dramatic way, which used to cost thousands of thousands of dollars, maybe even for a single gene test or a panel, has now dropped off to, to much less. And in fact, um, most recently, I saw a, a consumer-based company offering an entire genome test for $600. Wow. Um, so the, the cost of doing pharmacogenomic testing um, has really come down precipitously. On top of that, you look at the incredible rise of consumer-based testing. So the Ancestry.com, the 23andMe type testing that's being done um, with this for you know a fairly limited scope of non-clinically validated um, kind of tests. Um, there's a huge appetite for the uh, public with this. So I, I think cost as a, as a factor um, isn't necessarily the adoption. But if we go back to the previous question you asked in the area of behavioral health, if you look at the total cost of getting somebody from diagnosis to treatment of depression or anxiety, um, as an example, the total trial and error drug cost, physician office visits, lost work days, comorbidity where patients may be um, in the emergency room or being treated for other conditions, heart palpitations, GI symptoms, et cetera, becomes very, very high. And we've seen a couple of organizations, particularly accountable care organizations, recognize that bringing pharmacogenomics early into this equation will actually have a direct financial uh, implication for them. So I think that also is becoming a, a, a driving factor when, when, when you talk about where uh, the barriers and impetus from a financial standpoint uh, will come to bear. Right. And now looking at cost and reimbursement, these are often cited as barriers to providers for practicing precision medicine. So I have a few different questions on this. The first one being, has reimbursement largely caught up with the technology and the push for precision medicine? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. So, you know, on, on one hand, if you look on the cancer side, generally cost has not necessarily been a factor in terms of doing testing with this. If you take another example, I, I mentioned the uh, neonatal ICU. That's an area where widespread testing is already being done and cost is really not brought in. Why is that? Well, one could argue that if you have, a, unfortunately, a, a, a neonatal child in the, in the ICU, you're not really asking how much any particular item of cost is at that time. You're sort of a captive there and want everything that could be possibly done. And to some extent, that analogy works on the, the cancer side as well. It's in these newer areas that I think cost starts becoming a, a factor who's going to actually uh, pay for the test. But again, as, as the cost comes down, that, that question may be moved. I think payers are starting to slowly wake up to this and realizing that there are areas where it makes sense to pay for uh, genetic testing, known conditions. Um, as an example, even in the pharmacogenomic world that I talked about earlier, more and more reimbursement, particularly in the area of cardiovascular disease and in behavioral health, that there is reimbursement for doing pharmacogenomic testing already. And we're starting to see an acceleration of areas where payers are, are recognizing that this is something that should be reimbursable. And 
Are there any payment models that you think adequately address precision medicine? I know you mentioned accountable care organizations using this, and I guess this kind of lends itself to the other question of really understanding that maybe while upfront costs might be expensive, there's an argument to be made that with precision medicine, it saves costs in the long run because of preventive care and better health outcomes. So have you noticed that payment models are looking to address this? Sure. So um, people are starting to look at some of these return on investment questions. And I'll talk about why I think that some of them continue to be a work in progress. There's a couple areas. Uh, one of them is if we look at patients with uh, coronary artery disease that have had a recent myocardial infarction or, or a recent cardiac catheterization, uh, the standard of care is to put those patients on an antiplatelet drug, typically a drug called Plavix. Uh, we know that approximately 20, maybe up to 30% of the population genetically metabolizes that drug rapidly. And in fact, its ability to prevent a future heart attack is very, very much diminished in that population. So 20% of the uh, patients that come into an institution that have had a heart event are given an expensive drug that in fact doesn't uh, do anything. Um, and that patient comes in and now has to have a recurrent cardiac procedure or bypass, et cetera, you can start doing the math in that area. And, in, and that's an example where people have done cost analysis and are recognizing that there's a value to doing uh, pharmacogenomic testing. And there's lots of other areas where this is. One that it's not fun to talk about, but I'll go back to the uh, neonatal ICU where rapid diagnosis of a child's condition can lead to decreased length of stay in the NICU, which as you know, is incredibly expensive per diem. I say not fun to talk about because the reality is some of these conditions um, are later realized that they are fatal diseases and moving those children out to a different venue of care rather than NICU has some financial implications. And again, that's, that's a, a, a terrible way to think of of ROI, but you know there are, there are other probably better ones. But I I think you know for me one of the ones that that's helpful in how we think about this. I'm old enough and have been practicing medicine long enough that I remember in the early part of my career people were still taking gallbladders out in a conventional a conventional way, which was a large incision and a fairly long hospital stay and recovery point afterwards. The advent of laparoscopic surgery changed that dramatically. In the early days of laparoscopic surgery, there were many concerns. Um, one of them was that it was much more expensive to do. Two, that there was a higher rate of complication of this procedure. And three, hospitals would have to retool the, their ORs and training, et cetera, to do this. So the return on investment for a, a laparoscopic cholecystectomy was actually deemed very, very poor. And yet we didn't stop doing that. Of course we didn't because we, everybody intuitively knew that as soon as you got over the, the learning curve, that this would be a much more efficient, safer, and uh, less expensive way out of doing surgery, not just for, for gallbladders, but everything. And I think we're in a similar state right now in, in precision medicine, um, recognizing that, that right now there are a lot of factors where it is hard to define where that return on investment is. We don't have a lot of hard numbers yet, but um, the reality of common sense is 
there is no doubt that we're going to see incredibly high impact on reduction of costs, reducing hospital readmissions, reducing morbidity and mortality, reducing drug errors, uh, quicker diagnosis, um, better and more efficient treatment, et cetera. And these are going to have giant implications on lowering costs. And even with all these benefits, what are some of the barriers that are stopping some providers from trying to adopt and practice precision medicine? Yeah, there are a couple. One of them, sadly, is that the progression of the science has outpaced physicians' ability to keep up uh, with that science. And most of us had a very brief introduction to genetics in medical school, but many things have happened very, very quickly since uh, the human genome was deciphered a decade and a half ago. So keeping up with with knowledge is, is one of those things. Um, two is this sort of retooling the office, so to speak. We know how to give vaccinations and draw blood and, and do current lab tests, but most people really are unsure when it comes to ordering a genetic test, how to do that, where to do it, which test to order, et cetera. If I see a patient with a condition that I think is genetic, and m- probably most people, the first thing they do is use Google for that and saying, well, which genetic test should I order? And then they find out that there's a single gene or maybe a panel of genes or multiple panels to do. So there's really not a lot of clinical decision support to help guide the the best test today. Finally, um, when we get genetic tests, most of the results today are coming back as a report. So as a PDF or, or, or document and not as discrete data that can integrate within our current workflows as, as discrete data that can be used for, for analytics, that could be useful for uh, tracking and, and clinical decision support, et cetera. And as part of that, from an informatics standpoint, we still have lack of standardization of this data to move it be, between different um, systems. Nomenclature hasn't been standardized around this. So there's still a lot of work to be done on a technical level to bring this up to speed with our world of data analytics, machine learning, etc. Do you think there's also challenges with practice size? Are smaller practices disadvantaged in this because they might not have the resources that large health systems and hospitals do? The common wisdom would say that's that's true, but I don't think in reality that's been the case. Our experience has seen a, a rather impressive growth um, in the last six months to a year of small and mid-sized practices that have realized realized that they can introduce pharmacogenomics into their practices with some incredibly satisfying results if their expectations are uh, met at the beginning um, with relatively low cost to entry. Doing pharmacogenomics um, in a primary care practice, as an example, is we're, we're seeing a very, very large growth in that. Really basically saying, I'm not going to wait for my hospital system to develop this overall precision medicine strategy, which may take several years before we see it. So I think that there is a need for comprehensive enterprise-wide precision medicine strategy um, and, and platform within organizations. But I think that other pressures will come to bear sooner. And we haven't really even talked about the consumer pressure, which which is going to push this further because 
there are so many consumer-based tests being offered at a very, very low price. You know that 23andMe, as an example, offers some disease susceptibility uh, testing. They offer a pharmacogenomic type of piece to, to offer as, as well. So patients are coming to doctors and saying, I have this genetic problem and I want you to do something about it. And, and doctors are nowhere near equipped to even understand what to do with, with that information. So I think on the front line, primary care doctors in particular want to get ahead of this. And I think um, ironically that they may outpay some of the larger organizations in, in, in at least starting to have some strategy around precision medicine. So now, what are some ways to mitigate some of the challenges that practices face that are available now or ways to mitigate this that you would like to see? Yeah, I think the first piece here is we're clearly out of the stage where this is uh, maybe a future uh, kind of thing or it's a brand new technology. This is quickly becoming the, the standard of care in so many areas and the other you know, pieces that we've, we talked about, consumer pressure, et cetera, are driving this very, very hard. And I think one of the strategies that we have to do is say, we have to start today. We have to at least define some precision medicine strategy and think about at least a timeline of, of what we're going to offer, what we need to in terms of that today. And that's what I encourage organizations to do is, is just look at what your plan is. Oftentimes when I talk to organizations, they don't even know where genetic tests are being offered in their organization. So there may be three or four different labs that are being used a lot by maternal fetal medicine um, groups, for instance, in offering um, perinatal testing for genetic uh, risk to, to parents or, or, or expecting uh, mothers. Um, and all those results are coming back to the organization as paper reports. And so from a data standpoint, the, or, the organization doesn't even know that, that those exist. And worse than that, because that's germline data on a patient, in this case, a baby, um, that never changes. Our DNA, for the most part, is the same for the rest of our lives. So it's almost incomprehensible to think that that information, that fingerprint shouldn't go around with that child for the entire rest of their, their life to be able to requery to see if it can be used in another place. So getting those data silos liberated is, is a big piece to start off with, but just knowing where all this data is being generated, whether it's pharmacogenomic data, what's being done on the cancer side, et cetera, just starting to understand where doctors are ordering genetic tests to make sure that there's some efficiency and not overlapping panels or whether it makes sense to order a full genome on, on patients earlier on because there's, there's value there, et cetera. So that precision medicine, at least starting a strategy today, is the, the giant step that most people need to take today. And then saying, where can we get a, a toehold in this and start using this? You know, pharmacogenomics, we, we talk a lot early on. Um, it has some relatively little ethical concerns that I think a lot of people are scared about, you know, who's going to have my DNA data and what can people do with it. Um, pharmacogenomics is this teeny little sliver where it, it really fits into a medication safety strategy that an organization may already have, as an example. And, you know, 
why I'm, I'm talking about this. That's the other area I think is important is start to look at other quality initiatives that organizations have and seeing where genomics may play a role in this, whether that's in 30-day hospital readmissions, whether that's in polypharmacy and elderly patients, et cetera. These are the, probably the areas that, that we need to start focusing on early. What advice would you have for a provider or group looking to launch a precision medicine program? I may be biased here, but the, the first one is to start looking at your technology needs around this because I, I think it's important. We're talking about either a moderate or large size amount of data. And as I talked about a little earlier, this data cannot exist in, in silos. So understanding that this is a new data type and that that data needs to be integrated with other data that already exists. Um, within an organization. So to me, that's number one. Number two is start looking at how we can make this available to doctors at the point of care. Genetic counselors are still at a, a great rarity. Um, overall, the, the demand for genetic counseling versus the number of genetic counselors that are out there continues to be lopsided. And can we unburden those genetic counselors by automating some of these processes is a big one. Another area that I think we have to look at, and I'll, I'll call it low-hanging fruit, to me it's unconscionable that in the era that we're in and with the technology that we have um, with electronic medical records and clinical decision support, et cetera, that um, understanding simple things like a, a woman's genetic susceptibility to having breast and ovarian cancer based on family history, that we miss those those patients um, somehow, that, that we ask questions about family history, but how can we translate that into reality to, to increase the number of, of women that might have, you know, so-called BRCA gene to, to be able to add that as, as screening um, early, because those have tremendous out, outcomes. It's part of initiatives that we have for mammography screening, et cetera. So this is what I said earlier, is start looking at other areas of, of quality where we know genetics has a, a huge impact right now and start um, introducing those um, as well. Getting physicians' knowledge up on this is a tougher challenge, but increasing clinicians' overall uh, awareness of the role that genetics is playing today I think is important as part of our ongoing uh, continuing medical education, et cetera, and realizing that after we, we start the awareness process, this stuff isn't as complicated as people think it is, and they can start employing this in small ways into their daily practice. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you, Jamie. It was nice talking to you. To learn more, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. You can get in touch with us by emailing info at AJMC.com or by following us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And finally, if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thanks for tuning in.